Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. Good morning, everybody. So this morning, we are not going to be in Romans. We're going to call an audible. And we are going instead to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And I'll give everyone a second, and then we'll pray and get started. 2 Timothy is after Romans, before Revelation. Everyone there? Okay, let's stand to pray. Heavenly Father, we cherish you, we thank you, and we praise your name that we get to this morning and all the mornings you have in store for us, that you have allowed us the gift of natural life and open ears to hear your word, to sit under your truth, and be transformed by it. We make this simple request today that you, O Lord, open our ears and transform our hearts, that you will plant the good seed of your truth deep within our souls so that your light will shine from within and then shine forth. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, there are two very important 316s in the Bible. The first is John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, for whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. The second really important 3.16 in the Bible is 2 Timothy 3.16, and that's what this text says. It says, 16-17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now we're going to dive into and exposit our theme verse in a second. But we're taking a break We're taking a pause from our exposition of the book of Romans just to kind of formalize, just to come back home. We're going to explore today, church, how we're actually in real life applying the inerrant truth that we find in the Bible. So, the title of this morning's message is, Why Does the Bible Matter? It's a question. And we're going to answer it. Why does the Bible matter? The Bible matters because it is the Word of God. The Bible matters because it is the Word of God. Why should you read it? Because it is the Word of God. Why is it the capital T-H-E guide for the Christian's life? Because it is the Word of God. Realize, church that the all-powerful, 
all-knowing God of the universe gave us a book. And if the all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe gave us a book, he gave us that book for a reason. And he intends for us to read that book. So why does the Bible matter? Because God gave it to us. And why should we read it? Because it's God's words, not men's words. And we don't just read it once and then stop. We read it, Psalm number one, meditating on it day and night for the entire length of our Christian lives. Now, I'm going to teach everyone today a Latin phrase. And it's a shame no one from the baptism catechism is here because they would be all over this. This is a Latin phrase, sola scriptura. Does anyone know what this means? The answer was the word of God, and you're close. Sola, only, exclusively. Scriptura, scripture. Now, am I trying to impress you that I know two Latin words? No. This is a slogan. This is a mantra that the reformers of the Protestant Reformation lived by hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And this term, sola scriptura, communicates a simple Bible idea that's validated by 2 Timothy 3.16, and that is sola scriptura, scripture alone. Scripture alone is the only guide we need for any and all spiritual truth. Sola Scriptura points to the reality that the Bible alone is sufficient to instruct us in all spiritual matters. We don't need anything else other than the Bible nor do we add to or take anything away from what the Bible says. Now, Scripture alone does not mean that all truth is found in the Bible. Like if you want to learn how gravity works or the structure of DNA, you're not going to find it in Leviticus. So Scripture alone simply means that when, when, when we're talking about what a Christian needs, what a lost sinner needs to know about the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, all that scripture, that spiritual knowledge is found only and exclusively in the Word of God. Scripture alone means that all spiritual truth necessary, for example, for our salvation and the guidelines for our spiritual life are taught either explicitly or implicitly in Scripture. But not only is all truth, but Scripture alone is the supreme truth. I could sit here and give you a discourse on how mitochondria works. Mitochondria is a structure in your cells. That's great, and that would be true. We could all use a microscope and see mitochondria, but guess what? That truth won't save anyone, nor is that ultimate truth revealed by God. But when we're talking about what is divinely, ultimately true, the apex of all truth, that is found only and exclusively in the Bible.
So if we want to know what is a real church of God going to preach and teach, sola scriptura. If Christians get into an argument about something doctrinal, and they will, how do we know that? The Bible tells us so, Romans 14. What is going to be their objective guide that tells them what is right and what is wrong? The Bible alone, sola scriptura. If anyone wants to know about who God is and the plan he has to redeem sinners, the only place they go is the word of God. So why is sola scriptura a maxim to live by? Because all scripture is inspired by God, as 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us. So now let's dive into the text itself. Paul writes to Timothy and says, because all scripture, not some, not part of, all scripture. And that word scripture in English comes from the Greek word graphe, which means writings. So Paul is saying all writings, everything that's been written down, that's been memorialized in the canon of Scripture, which means he's excluding what people may have been taught or what they may have been heard orally or that's been passed down via tradition. All Scripture, everything that's written down, that is what is inspired by God. And this word inspired means God breathing out. When I first read this verse, I thought when the text said, all scripture is inspired by God, I thought that thousands of years ago, you would have a man like the Apostle Paul and he would breathe God in, or he would breathe in God fumes. That's not what this word means. The word is theonoustos in Greek, which literally means God breathing out. So literally, the God of the universe breathes out and the result is the book that we have in front of us. Now here's the critical point. If all scripture is inspired by God, then anything that is not scripture is not inspired by God. Let's say that again. I'd write this down. If all scripture is inspired by God, that means anything that is not scripture is not inspired by God. What am I saying? I'm not telling you that the truth does not exist outside of the Bible. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is because scripture alone is inspired, is breathed out by God, when we're talking about what is ultimately true, that is only and exclusively found in the Word of God. Now, let's begin applying this. Who are the group of individuals that Jesus got into debates with the most during his public ministry? The scribes and the Pharisees. Why? I can't hear you. You're very, very close. They basically were very religious, but had no relationship with God. They were very religious, but their religion was essentially very man-centered because the Pharisees 
did not live by the mantra sola scriptura. What do I mean by that? They did not look to the writings. They did not look to what we would call the Old Testament as the ultimate authority. What were they looking to? They were looking to culture. They were looking to tradition. They were looking to what they were used to. And as a result, because they didn't elevate the Word of God as the supreme, ultimate authority, they now got into trouble. And they were simply following what other people were doing and what other folks called religious. Here's what Jesus tells the Pharisees in Luke 6, 1 to 3. The text says, Luke 6, 1 to 3. Now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a, that Jesus was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do that which is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering them said, Have you not read? Do you know what Jesus was asking them? He was asking them, can you read? He was saying, are you literate? He was basically saying, I'm not giving you guys something radical or new. Everything I'm preaching and teaching to you is recorded where? In the word, in the scriptures, in what we now would call the Old Testament. Because Jesus was living by the mantra as the one who is the word in the, in the flesh, that scripture alone is inspired by God. Here is the crucially important thing to realize. The Pharisees' problem, church, was not that they were zealously holding on to something. That wasn't their ultimate problem. Their ultimate problem was that the thing they were ultimately holding on to wasn't the word of God, and their zeal wasn't the problem. The problem was where their zeal was directed. It was directed away from the ultimate authority. It was directed towards the customs and the traditions of men, and here's why that's dangerous. Because they did not uphold God's word as the ultimate truth, you know now what happened? When God was literally standing right in front of them, they didn't see God. And when God now was literally speaking directly to them so their ears could audibly hear the word of God, they basically shrugged him off as a nobody. And what does history tell us? What did those same folks end up doing? They killed God. Even though the word, sola scriptura, the ultimate authority, said Jesus was coming hundreds of years in the past. And to even double down on that fact more, that their zeal wasn't the problem, who was the Apostle Paul? He used to be a Pharisee. What happened to him? His zeal never went away, did it? But what God now did is he redirected that zeal to the Word of God. And now you have the man, when that zeal is appropriately directed, who writes a bulk of the New Testament. So, all Scripture is inspired by God. It is also beneficial. 
It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's profitable for teaching. That is sound Christian doctrine, which can now be applied to everyday life. It's profitable for reproof. Not just proof, but reproof. Meaning, you can take anything, you can take any issue and throw it up against the Bible and continually and cyclically revalidate it over and over and over again. And what God now does is he continually reconfirms his truth as he writes it on your heart. It's also also profitable for correction. So you can take anything crooked, you can take anything not straight, match it up against the Word of God, and now correct it. And the end result is that the servant of God may now be adequate, equipped for every good work. Because when God's light and truth is in you, what comes out of you is light and truth. So that's the doctrine. So that's the doctrine part. Now we're going to have some fun. Now we're going to find out how people are actually applying sola scriptura in their regular, everyday lives. This happened to me this week, actually. So now you are all Bible-breathing, Holy Spirit-inspired children of God. So now let's say you meet someone on the street and they tell you, I don't need the word. I just walk in the spirit. I don't have any creeds. I don't, need a, I don't need a baptism catechism. I don't need any kind of formal instruction. I just live and walk by the Holy Spirit. I have no creed but Jesus Christ. What's your response? If someone were to say they only walk or live by the Spirit and ignore the Word of God, if we know that Scripture alone is inspired by God and someone is now telling us they don't rely on the Scriptures, what's our response? Exactly. That's what I would ask. I would say, who taught you that? How did you come to that conclusion? Church, realize something. We have to realize something, right? The thing that's objective, again, the thing that's inspired, that's revealed to us by God, is his word. The last person we can trust is myself. Do you know why? Because we are fallen people. If, he, if someone were to say, I just live or walk by the Spirit to the, to the detriment of the Word of God, that is now a very convenient way for someone to say, I will think and do what I want to do and now use the Holy Spirit to justify it. What is ultimately true and revealed by God is the Word of God. It's not our thoughts. It's not our feelings. So, to be complete, we are to live in spirit and in truth because the Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth, which means if you are doing something contrary to the truth of God, it's not the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit regenerates us, which now opens our hearts, opens our eyes, opens our ears to say, Amen, Word of God. God, speak to me. God, transform me. God, mold me. And you are now going to live a spiritual life, but the objective foundation is objective. It's revealed by God himself. So any part of me, any part of you, anything we think or believe or act or do or preach or teach, if it doesn't coincide with what is in this book, then it's not of God. Why? Because all scripture is inspired by God. Here's the counter argument to my argument. You're a legalist. So I meet John Doe, they say no creed but Christ. I just say what I just said. And they now say, Sadafel, you're a legalist. What's the response? Someone define legalism for me. See why we have the Sunday school lesson? This is good. Okay, because this is a crucial point. Here's what legalism actually is. Legalism is when you make a law that's not in the Bible. It's when you make a rule and say either thou shalt or thou shalt not, that's not found in the word of God. Church, realize something. If I'm looking for a guide by which to live, and I open to the book of Exodus, and it says, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not be an idolater. If I now follow those rules, that doesn't make me a legalist, that makes me Christian. Because God, all scripture is inspired by God, meaning this is the light, this is the, the, um, the path, this is the blueprint that which I can now follow. Legalism would say something like, whenever you walk into church, you must wear a hat. Legalism will say something like, you must do your liturgy specifically and precisely this exact way. Legalism will say something like, whenever women come into a church, they have to wear white. Whenever men come into a church, they have to wear a yellow flower. That's a rule now or a legal requirement that doesn't exist in the Bible. But if a person now with an open Bible says, all scripture is inspired by God. I want God's truth to lead me and guide me. That doesn't make them a legalist. That means they're thinking, using the brain that God gave them, knowing that all scripture is inspired by God. Okay. Here's my next question. And maybe the singers will chime in on this. How do we determine how we worship. Anybody? How do we choose the songs that we sing? Amen? That glorify God. Exalt the name of Jesus. Exalt the name of Jesus. Would we ever choose a song to sing because it gets us excited or it makes us want to move? or because it's a catchy tune. 
sometimes we may because now we're talking about form. But the most, so first of all, the first four commandments in the Bible as revealed to Moses and the people of Israel reveal about the worship of God. We have to worship God reverently, rightly, and regularly. So the, the how it looks is going to be different uh, uh, contingent upon where you go in the world. The people are worshiping the United States, people are worshiping the middle of Africa, people are worshiping the middle of Asia. It's going to look different. But what is of prime importance now is going to be the content of that worship. What are people actually saying? What are people actually doing? Because if you look at a Christian worship service, and you're going to find it hard just by looking at a video, distinguishing it from a rock concert, something is wrong. We now have to pay very, very close attention to the lyrics that we're actually saying. You could have the most beautiful song sung by the most talented singer with a beach that's catchy, which draws everyone to the church, and everyone, even the person who can't walk, gets up and starts dancing. You could have a song like that, but now have lyrics that contradict what's found in this book, and that is not appropriate worship. How do we know that? because this book tells us so. And we know this book is reliable because all scripture is inspired by God. Remember Nahab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10? What did they do? When you look at it on the surface, they simply offer God strange fire. Now let's think about this. Why did they lose their lives if they simply did something on the surface as seemingly simple as offering strange fire, because it wasn't about the fire. It was about people who wanted to worship God their own way. And knowing what God said, there's a precise and specific way to approach him, Nahab and Abihu basically said, we're going to do what we want to do. And what was God's judgment? Death. That's Leviticus 10 verses, Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. Here's what John chapter 4, verse 23 says. Jesus speaks to the woman at the well. He says, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Beloved, in the book of James, James gives a warning. And he says, woe to anyone who wishes to be a teacher. Why, church? Because accuracy matters. And it's one thing for one person to hold on to an idea that contradicts this book. But when someone now gets up and begins teaching people that which is contrary to this book, and we have to take the apostolic warning in James chapter 3, verse 1, seriously. Because anyone now who sits in a position that's going to lead and guide other people, the threat now, if they are not relying solely and exclusively on this book, is they can now lead and guide people who are otherwise innocent into that which is not true. Accuracy matters because all Scripture is inspired by God. How do we know we're accurate if it lines up with God's divine truth? 
So here's the last one. This is quick. Or at least I hope it'll be quick. Who's ultimately responsible for if your children are saved or not? The parents? Who says the parents? Raise your hand. Don't be shy. Up, up, up. Okay, who says not the parents? I have a question, church. Who is the author of our salvation? Jesus. Okay, yay and amen. I agree. Because Jesus told Nicodemus, if you're not born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. Who causes themselves to be born? No one. Okay. So if God is the one who causes us to be born again, why would we ever think a person's natural parents is the one ultimately responsible for a child being saved? I mean, look, people say, Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way that he should go, right? Where is that book? Where is that verse? In the book of Proverbs. I'm going to begin preaching a series on Proverbs next month. Beloved, Proverbs are not imperative commands. They're not hard and fast rules of life. They're generalities that give general rules about the way things are supposed to go. But when we look at Proverbs 22.6 and everything else the Bible says, the person who is ultimately responsible for whether or not someone is saved is God himself. Think about it. Amen. Oh, oh yes. Amen, amen. Because what I just said never, ever, 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 ever dismisses a parent's responsibility in doing what God has called them to do. Because in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Ephesians chapter 6, who does God say is the primary person responsible for leading and guiding children? The father. It's not the pastor. It's not the elder. It's the person who spends the most amount of time with that child. But here then is the follow-up to that point. If we now were to think that the fleshly individual was ultimately responsible for a child's salvation, you know what that does? That can make someone think, look what I can do. A parent can now look at their children and say, look what I did. Look, I made my children to be saved. They could also look at another child who was not saved and say their parents did something wrong. Can you think of a set of twins in the Bible who had the same parents but had two different fates? Ah. Do you see how God was setting us up? You had two children who biologically were the same, same womb, same father, same, same mother. Jacob went on to be the father of the nation of Israel. What did God say about Esau? I hated him. Wow. So now we see that, of course, God installs the family so you can have parents nurturing and caring for the children. Of course, and they're going to do everything in their power to train a child in the way they are to go. But ultimately, 
the one who is responsible for anyone's salvation is God himself. Look at David, look at Solomon, look at King Josiah, the king in the Bible, of whom no sin is recorded, and look at his son, Jehoiakim, who was wicked. Amen. In fact, most kings in the history of Israel and Judah were bad guys. So I say all that to say, church, long way around. Sola Scriptura, only Scripture, only that which God says. If I, if I ever tell you anything that contradicts what's in this book, I am in error because this book is always right. Why? Because sola scriptura, all scripture is inspired by God himself. Any questions? Let's pray. Precious Lord, we thank you for making your truth real. We thank you for making your light appreciable. And we thank you for opening our eyes and opening our ears to truth that was uttered in eternity past and that will accomplish everything that you've purposed. We yield before you now to not only intellectually and emotionally, but practically write your truth on our hearts that we will see, O oh Lord, how your light, how your power, and how your spirit, animated by your truth, animates every single step that we take in life. Lord Jesus, we yield before you, we bless you, and we thank you. In, the name of, in your precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.